DiscerningHearts.com presents St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is a popular author working in the area of church history, specializing in patristics, the study of the early church fathers. He is the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a Roman Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine and a general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series from Ave Maria Press. He is the author or editor of more than 50 books, including St. Joseph and His World, the book on which this series is based. He has hosted 11 television series on the Eternal Word Television Network and is a frequent guest commentator on Catholic Radio. St. Joseph and His World, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike Aquilina. It is so good to be talking with you again. Well, it's it's good to be in the conversation, Chris. Thanks for the invitation. I am delighted to be able to talk about St. Joseph. And when you came out with St. Joseph and his world, I thought, there it is. And boy, the timing. You know, at a time in our world where we need to have the figure of St. Joseph as a model, I don't think we've ever lived through a period where his presence isn't more needed. Yes, I think he's always needed. And of course, his prominence in the church's devotion has been growing down through the centuries. I think it was a providential preparation for our own moment when we need him so much. There's such a a, a need for a strong model for fathers today. Uh, there's so such a need for a strong protector for the church. And, uh, and in so many other ways, you know, St. Joseph has many roles traditionally in Christian life. And it seems like in all of them, we're, we're feeling that need, especially acutely uh, in these days. What I love so much about the book is that oftentimes when we want to learn more about St. Joseph, and there's been a lot of wonderful books out there about St. Joseph, we encounter him first from the moment see him in the Gospels, and then forward, you know, and his effects, not only on the Holy Family, but on the entire church. But in your book, what I think is so important is you put him in the entire context of not only salvation history, but in particular, the the history of his people, uh, the peoplehood of the Jewish Mm -hmm. people, and why he was uniquely fashioned and ready to take on this incredible role. So thank you so much for doing that. It's important to know that background because it's all invoked there. I mean, the main source we have for the life of St. Joseph, the main historical source, is the Gospel of St. Matthew. And of course, the Gospel of St. Matthew begins by placing Joseph in that context. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then going through those generations so that you have the entire history of the family. It's not just a national history. It's a family history. It's very immediate uh, for St. Joseph and for Jesus. And they grew up with an intense awareness of this. You mentioned the family. It's very significant that we understand that the family, it, it has its origins, of course, the holy family and then the people of God, but it's God's family. Yes. It is the family he is fashioning, isn't he? He is. And St. Joseph has a privileged position in that family because he's the image of God the Father. In a sense, he's the the vicar of God the Father on earth because of his place as, as patriarch in the Holy Family. 
Mm. Now, you mentioned the genealogy that we find in Matthew. Of course, Matthew's gospel, as those who have undertaken some type of scripture study, knows that Matthew is speaking to essentially a Jewish audience, is he not? Yes, that's the tradition that St. Matthew uh, was writing probably in Roman Syria, and he was writing for a Jewish audience. Uh, Some ancient sources say, uh, especially Jerome, uh, says that he originally wrote the gospel in the Hebrew language. So he was writing it to, to his own people, really. Those people understood the importance of knowing their history. That's right. I mean, uh, Judaism is so, uh, so different from from all other world religions in in that it's utterly grounded in history. So much of the Old Testament is a relation of the history of a people, and it names names, and it, it gives places that you can find on a map. It's not mythological. It's not dealing with timeless truths so much as the story of God's people. It's uh, it's very concrete in that way, and it sets Judaism apart from all others. So Matthew invokes all of that at the beginning because he knows it's going to be important for his intended audience. It's there in capsule way because he knows that they're going to demand this. They're going to demand an accounting of just how this Messiah fulfills the prophecies that they knew from from their scriptures. You had me... In one of the paragraphs in the first chapter where they said that they had kept careful records of their ancestry going back 2,000 years to Abraham so they could see the patterns because it's hard to discern in the course of a year or even a lifetime, but it was clear over the course of centuries that God made seemingly impossible promises, but he always fulfilled them. And I think that's really key for us to see it now, too. We need to go back and look at that larger scope, don't we? Yes, absolutely. You know, because they had great expectations. God had made wild promises, it seems, from the beginning of time, from the the time immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, he promised that there would come a redeemer, there would come a savior, someone to rescue them. At the time of Moses, you know, they they were promised a prophet greater than Moses would come and be their deliverer. And then at the time of King David, you know, David is installed as the great king in Jerusalem, uh, and God promises that his kingdom will be forever, that his house will reign forever over the chosen people. That's a, that's a big promise. And you know what? David did enjoy a long reign. David reigned for 40 years, and that's a long time for a king, especially in the ancient world when life expectancy wasn't all that great and kings were often assassinated. So David reigns for 40 years. And then his son Solomon reigns for another 40 years. That's a long time, 80 years altogether. But you know what? 80 years is not forever, and it doesn't seem to match up to the promises that God had made. God says, I will establish his line forever, meaning David's line. I will establish his throne as the days of the heavens. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. So God made big promises, and he always delivers on his promises. The the people knew that. So they knew it was just a matter of time. They might have to wait centuries, but God would deliver. And so there was this expectation. They preserved the promises in writing. They preserved the Holy Scriptures. And in the house of David, in the family, the clan of King David, they also 
carefully preserved their genealogical tables, even though the people, especially the elites of the chosen people, were exiled to Babylon and they were dispersed to other lands. They kept carefully these genealogical tables over the course of centuries. They needed to make sure they knew their pedigree, they knew their heritage, they knew the inheritance, so that when the time came, when God was ready, then they would be able to step forth and bring a son of David who was eligible for the throne. That's the kind of fidelity that they exhibited over centuries. Yeah, let's talk about that, David. He, <laughs> an extraordinary man, extraordinary hero in many ways for the people of God, for the Jewish people. However, even though he seemed to be so blessed, and indeed he was by God, he failed in such big ways in, in oh. regards, didn't he, Mike? Oh, he did. I, I, he becomes the paradigmatic sinner because he sins so boldly and outrageously. You know, he commits adultery with a wife of his most loyal and faithful general, a friend, someone, someone who was dear to him and who was ready to lay down his life for David. Yet David commits adultery with her, and then he, he arranges the murder of the man in order to cover it up. It's, it's a terrible thing. You can't imagine crimes worse than David committed there. And yet then he repented, and he gave us the model of repentance in Psalm 51, the miserere. We still recite these today when we want to express our own sorrow for sins. You know, have mercy on me, O Lord. Th these are the words that come to mind for us. So yes, David is, yes, a great hero, a great king. He is also a paradigmatic sinner. He's the one who teaches us how to repent when we've sinned. Well, and then his son, of course, Solomon, did he learn from his father's lessons, the things that happened in his father's life? I mean, or did he just do, did he sin in other ways? He sinned in other ways. You know, he brought about a census, even though his father's census had caused no end of trouble for the Israelites. It was a matter of pride of expressing military might. And, and they wanted to get the numbers in order to boast about their prowess. That was a bad thing. So, so Solomon does that. He also taxes the people in a burdensome way. These are bad things to do. <laughs> you don't want to go there. And of course, he suffers the consequences. So Solomon ends up also being a great sinner. He takes on so many concubines, so many wives for diplomatic purposes, bringing these other countries into his orbit by marrying into their royal families. Well, these wives brought false gods into the land and insisted on building shrines to these gods, and Solomon indulged them and even took part in sacrifice to these false gods. So yes, as greatly as David sinned, it seems that Solomon uh, outdid him in committing idolatry. So again, these are the great heroes of the monarchs, and yet they show themselves to be utterly flawed. They show themselves to be imperfect, and in fact, their sins do bring about the downfall of the kingdom, of the house. Their sins leave the land vulnerable and the people vulnerable, eventually divide the country, leave it open to its enemies, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians. Wow. And we learned so much more in depth on both of these incredible biblical figures, these, these men of, of scripture in St. Joseph and his world. But, you know, it just is a 
kind of like a quick side trip for us living today, learning from their mistakes is something that we can do too. I mean, when we look at, uh, let's just say Solomon, for example, and the census that he took, you know, it really jumped out at me when I was reading this, Mike, that in many ways, today we get caught up in numbers. How many followers? How many likes? How many people? How many this? How many that? As a show of power. And we have to be very careful about that. It's easy for us to slip, just as it was for Solomon. It can be for us to get caught up in the movements of the world and the need for those kind of things. That's right. You know, uh, you know, God's strength is is shown in weakness, and our Lord Himself showed in the course of His earthly life that it, it was this utter weakness. A man crucified, bound on the cross, humiliated, who ends up saving the world. He's reduced to nothing in the eyes of his own people and in the eyes of of anyone who happened to be walking by that day. And yet this is the the pivotal act in all human history. This is the act that changed the course of history. This is the act that fulfilled all of God's promises. So yes, it's easy for us to to fall into the same trap that David fell into in Solomon, even though, you know, the kind of power we're after looks pretty puny and pretty pitiful compared to theirs. Mm -hmm. It's a good lesson for all of us to learn because in this particular ancestry, the reason why a savior will be born from the house of David, God's keeping his promise in all this. And as you said, even though it looks like the the land has been divided, is it a humbling that is taking place for the people? Is this uh, allowing them to be humbled? and maybe an opportunity for them to have a degree of gratitude. I don't mean well, necessarily grateful, but, but gratitude. There is a little bit of a difference. Yes. The, the, you, know, the, um, you know, as you point out, the, the land is shattered. The people are exiled. The house is brought down. You know, the last, the last king in the line of David is forced to watch each of his sons uh, uh, killed executed in you know he's forced to witness this one son after another after another after another and at the end of it all he's blinded by his babylonian captors so that the last sight he has seen is the execution of his sons it's a, a cruel moment but he's shown they want to punish the jews for resistance right mm -hmm. and so they they want to make an example of him and they they punish him in a most cruel way and it seems that the the line of david is extinguished at that moment because the king's offspring have all been destroyed before his very eyes so yes they were reduced in this way but you know we uh, hear in the gospels you know that god could raise sons of abraham from the very stones god created adam out of the earth and he did bring back the royal family of David from oblivion, from exile in Babylon, where they were, where the whole clan was living in obscurity for centuries, waiting for the, the time of fulfillment to come. We'll return to St. Joseph and his world with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs. Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. 
This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. From a letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6. Be strengthened in the Lord in the might of his power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. Therefore, take up the armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil every day and stand in all things perfect. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of justice and having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace, in all things taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all fiery darts of the most wicked one. And take for yourself the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. With all prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit, and be vigilant in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life-transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study in prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. We now return to St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina. You helped our understanding of, even though it seemed as though the children that came from David to Solomon and then their descendants were all wiped out, it was David had fathered 18 children. Yes. He had eight wives. Yes. And that's why the genealogy was so important because that's how they kept track who was from this household of David. And over the course of 500 years, you can imagine that the clan of David in the dispersion was pretty vast. Uh, at the same time, they held on to their royal identity. They had a certain pride in their ancestry. They knew that they were the descendants of the king, and they tended to, to live together. And we see this today when, uh, when there's a dispersion of the Jews, they tended to make neighborhoods in Europe where they could live together, worship together keep their homes according to the law, observe the kosher kitchen, and so on, and keep the Sabbath in a faithful way. And in Babylon, they certainly did the same. They kept a community. They kept a, a family identity and a family presence 
so that they could be faithful to the law. And again, they kept those genealogical tables. They preserved them from generation to generation. They augmented them from generation to generation as new children were born to their clan. But they preserved those. In the second century, Julius Africanus, a Christian historian, is in the Holy Land, and he sees that the family still preserves those tables. They still kept the genealogy of David from generation to generation. That's a remarkable thing, and it shows their strong sense of identity, their pride in the past, but also their belief that God will, would fulfill his promises, as he had indicated, to their family, through their descendants. It just as you were speaking, again, as a quick side note, that an emphasis on memory. Don't forget. And we will hear that in the Eucharist, won't we? Do this in remembrance of me. Do, you know, remember, don't forget. Uh, yes, again, we are, uh, biblical religion is historical religion. You know, we're not talking about long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, we're willing to put names and dates on these events. We're willing to take out a map and show you where they, where they happened. We're about real history, gritty history with real people, often ordinary people, as well as kings. The whole range of human experience is brought up in a, in a real way in the history we know from the Bible. And of course, it's so important. I mean, God, he doesn't abandon us. I mean, he spoke through the prophets in this time yes. of exile. I mean, he still had his communication, communion with us. This is what the records show, and this is why the records were so carefully preserved, because we could read them and remember the marvels the Lord has done. Repeat that line and know that God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God had delivered them into the land against all odds, the promised land. God had raised up David, and then God again raised the uh, the sons of David from obscurity in Babylon returned them to the land and restored the kingship, but in a surprising way, in a way that was greater than they ever would have imagined or expected. Yeah, we're moving closer to that time of, of Good St. Joseph that is the focus of our conversations. And, yes. and in this, we're moving, the, the people are in exile, the prophets are foretelling that, you know, to uh, prepare because you're going to be brought back home. And the opportunity for them to return to their land is given to them, but not all of them come. Oh, that's right. They had grown comfortable in Babylon. They'd grown, you know, uh, prosperous. They had a living there. And, and think about it. It had been 500 years. Uh, after 500 years, you don't know your ancestral country. You've probably never been there. And, and you're not eager to go back to an unfamiliar place where they speak a different language. You're not going to feel at home ever in your life after that. You know, think about, about us today. Would we go back to the land of our ancestors given an opportunity? Uh, you know, probably not. I want to be around my friends and my extended family. So, so yes, quite a few of the of the the people had grown comfortable in Babylon. But then, in the second century BC, some strange events happened. Again, against all odds, a group of rebels uprose in the Holy Land against their Syrian Greek rulers, especially this mad ruler, King Antiochus. Mm. who was trying to impose Greek customs on them. Well, they decided to rise up against him in spite of his military might, and they, they waged guerrilla warfare with 
you know, just a, a small band of soldiers. They waged guerrilla warfare, which wore down the Syrians. They prevailed over them. They took back Jerusalem. They took back the temple and they reconsecrated the temple. That's what's celebrated during Hanukkah. And this family, this warrior family, the Maccabees, restored rule and the priesthood to Jews, faithful Jews in Jerusalem. During their reign uh, in that second century and uh, the, the century afterward, they began to restore the lands uh, of David and Solomon that had been lost down the centuries. They began to restore the lands and they forced the people to observe the law. And so they imposed ritual circumcision on adult males, for example. So it was a serious effort to restore the lands and the people and fulfill the prophecies almost by force of will. So this happens over those centuries and word begins to get back to the, the Jews living in the dispersion in Babylon that the lands have been restored, the people have been restored, right worship has been restored, they're, they're fixing up the temple. There's a priest king ruling from Jerusalem. Wow, this begins to sound like a restoration of the monarchy as it was supposed to be, as God had established it. So yes, the, the word gets back to Babylon. And so a, a number of people from the clan of King David who had been living there in exile in Babylon, decide to make the long trip back to the Holy Land and establish villages there. And again, the prophecies were lining up. The prophet Daniel had said that in 70 weeks of years, the Messiah would come, that, that there would be fulfillment. 70 weeks of years had just about expired. So the, these people from the clan of David made the decision to go home, so to speak, to go to this land where they had never lived, and their immediate ancestors had not lived, and yet they were going to go to be ready to claim their title when the moment came. There seemed to have been a migration around 100 BC. The people from David's line established two villages, created them ex nihilo, really, because they had not been settled. The, the area there had not been settled for a long time. It was wasteland. They established these two villages, one called Nazareth and one called Kokhbah, gave both of them messianic names, names that referred to the Messiah. Uh, the, the, Nazareth was the village of the branch because a shoot would come forth from the stump of Jesse's tree, right? This is it. The, the branch would come forth from this reduced stump. The other one, Kokhba, means the star. So yes, we have the star there that's invoked as the star of Bethlehem later on. But both of these refer to the Messiah as he's indicated in the oracles of the prophets. So the people from the line of David go back home to the Holy Land. It's from this line, and it's in one of these villages, Nazareth, that Joseph is born. And this is where the, the story becomes even more interesting because a lot of us are familiar with what's going to come, but we're going to have to save that for our next episode. Yes. I can't wait until we enter into this wonderful seedbed, really, that has allowed so much fruit to grow. And I'm just so appreciative of what you've done in St. Joseph and his world, Mike. I, I can't wait to continue talking about it. I'm looking forward to the conversation myself. You've been listening to St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina. 
To learn more about this subject, you can purchase the book, St. Joseph and His World, on which the series is based. Visit scepterpublishers.org, the website for the publisher, Scepter Publishers. Or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. Or you can find it in the Discerning Hearts free app. This has been a production of the Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will please pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our effort. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com. And join us next time for St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina.